Well, good morning, beloved. Uh, it's time to give our attention to God's Word this morning, so if you would, join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering around your Word. Thank you that we have the freedom to hear your Word. But Lord, forgive us if we think we have the freedom to forget your Word, to disregard your Word, to go about our own way without acknowledgement of your Word. Grant, O oh Lord, that our attention would be more than intellectual, but our attention to your word would be uh, just one aspect of a life fully dedicated to you. Speak to us by your word, we pray. Help us to believe and help us to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you trust authority? Since the 1960s, protesters have been placing on bumper stickers the short slogan, Question Authority. By that they mean government authority. In the wake of the Vietnam War, the Watergate scandals, televised brutality of the civil rights movement, the country's relationship to authority seemed to switch from trusting to questioning. Authority went from being a basically good thing to be respected to a basically suspicious thing, to be interrogated and resisted. That shift in opinion towards authority did not stop with government authority, of course. Other forms of authority have suffered a beating as well. For example, religious authority has fallen on hard times. We can understand why. We've had 30 years of child sexual abuse scandal inside the church. First, there was the Roman Catholic scandal. Abuse stories rocked the Roman Catholic Church. And how did the Roman Catholic Church handle the stories of priestly abuse? Well, they used their authority simply to move the pedophiles from one parish to another. Well, just when the Protestant Church was getting all haughty about the Roman Catholic Church, the scandals began to surface in Protestant churches, too. They handled the situation no better than Roman Catholic churches. Pastors continued in office, or they simply moved to another church. If anything, it seems religious authority protected its own. So, now, many question or outright reject any claims to religious authority. In addition, many people have gotten to the point now where they are suspicious of expertise, expert knowledge. Expertise is an authority in a particular subject area or for a particular field. Doctors are experts of the human body and of healing. Lawyers are experts in the law and legal proceedings. In the age of the Internet, though, any two opinions get treated as if they are equally valid opinions. Never mind that one person has a Ph.D., has taught that subject for many years, and published many scholarly books and articles on it. His opinion, or her opinion, seems to be weighted as equally as a 45-year-old man living in the basement of his parents working part-time at Walmart. Expertise has fallen on hard times. We move from questioning objective truth to questioning facts themselves. The world has created a culture where knowing and acting with authority almost instantly calls you into question. 
So nowadays, conspiracy theories like QAnon get treated like facts, while the CDC gets treated like crackpots. Authority has taken a beating. People tend to think that authority is contrary to justice, contrary to freedom, contrary to truth, even contrary to stability in life. So let me ask you again, where are you on this issue? Do you trust authority? Now how we answer that is probably more important than we think. I mean, after all, God has made a universe filled with authority and authority figures. God himself is a God with all authority. So, if we are allergic to authority, guess who else we are allergic to? In our text this morning, we are continuing to learn about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 14 and 34, is that Jesus is the Son of God, and part of what that means is, he has all authority. We're going to see five things. He has authority to command our spiritual lives, verses 14 and 15. He has authority to direct our personal lives, verses 16 and 20. He has authority to teach God's word and to rule over demons. We see that in verses 21 and 28. And he has authority to heal all diseases. We see that in verses 29 to 34. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Mark chapter 1 as we continue our sermon series, uh, Follow Me, the, the Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Look first at our first point. Jesus has authority to command our spiritual lives. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our opening section really describes the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You see there in verse 14, John the Baptist has been arrested. So John's ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah is completed, basically. Now Jesus, the Messiah, is on the scene and he begins his own public ministry. Notice how he begins that ministry in verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of God was Jesus' main message. Preaching was his main ministry strategy. Mark summarizes Jesus' message there in verse 15. Notice what he says. Saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's really in this message that we see Jesus' religious authority. His authority to command our religious lives. I mean, he issues here in this summary in verse 15 a time-sensitive command, not a leisurely suggestion. We know it's time-sensitive by the words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is a, that, that appointed time that, that God promised when he would send his Messiah centuries earlier in the Old Testament. Now that kingdom has come, it is began, it is inaugurated with the coming of Jesus. The time is at hand. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is among you. He says, hey guys, it's here. I'm here. And so it's urgent that his hearers recognize that the kingdom has come. 
But Jesus' preaching carries with it two commands as well, doesn't it? It's not merely an announcement of fact. It's, a, it's an obligation. It's a command. He says there, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe are obligations, not options. Jesus seems to have the legitimate authority to tell us how to spiritually respond to news of his kingdom and his gospel. So, beloved, this means we are mistaken if we think our spiritual freedom extends to deciding how we ought to reply to Jesus' message. It doesn't. Jesus, the Son of God, decides which responses are acceptable to him. And he names two. Repent, which means to change your mind 180 degrees, with a resulting change in lifestyle and behavior. So he says now, you must repent, and number two, you must believe. That is, you must trust yourself to his message and his promises in the gospel. You see there, specifically, he says, we must repent and believe the gospel. In verse 1, Mark refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he refers to the gospel of God. In Matthew's gospel, in several places, he refers to the gospel of the kingdom. Those are all ways of referring to the same good news in two parts. Number one, the kingdom of God is here. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And number two, you must enter that kingdom by repenting and believing. It's the only way to enter that kingdom. Now, today, there are groups of people who break these two things into separate parts, even separate messages. Some say that the gospel is about the kingdom. They emphasize how large the kingdom is, and they emphasize how many issues the kingdom addresses. They discuss the sort of lifestyle that the, the kingdom requires, obligations to love your neighbor and do justice. The other group says the gospel is about individual salvation. They say what's really critical is repentance and faith, followed by the individual's transformation. They say Christians should not focus on justice issues, just evangelism. Well, each group is half right and half wrong. When Mark summarizes the gospel in verse 15, look there again, he mentions both things together. There is the announcement of the kingdom, which brings the rule and the ways of God, but entry into that kingdom requires repentance and faith. You cannot repent and believe without entering the kingdom. But you cannot enter the kingdom without repenting and believing. There are no Christians who are not at the same time kingdom citizens, according to Ephesians 2.19. And there are no kingdom citizens who are not converted, people who repent and believe. Now, when we break these things in two, we do damage to the whole. We distort the gospel. We distort Christian living and Christian witness. I mean, suppose I gave you a, a suitcase full of $100 bills, but then I tore each bill in half. What happens to the value of that suitcase of money? It, it drops down to nothing, doesn't it? Or imagine it's Christmas time and I, I give you a gift that you've been wanting. Only it's a gift that requires batteries and there, there are no batteries along with the gift. What happens to the function and the enjoyment of that gift? Well, it becomes useless and ineffective without batteries, doesn't it? 
Well, see, to repent and believe without being inserted in the kingdom is to lose the vision, the values, and the purposes of God's rule in the kingdom. It's like having batteries or or, or charger, but 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 not being able to sort of insert it into a Game Boy. Likewise, to try and preach and live a kingdom life without emphasizing conversion, repentance, and belief is offering someone a trunk full of $100 bills torn in half. It's valueless, especially from an eternal perspective. Non-kingdom people can't do kingdom work. To preach the kingdom without calling them to repent is sort of holding out a life to them that they can never really access. Now, out, out in the Christian world, brothers and sisters are tearing themselves apart over this. Each side saying they have the true gospel. ARC is not going to make that mistake. We are going to believe everything the Bible teaches and are going to hold together what the Bible holds together. If you're used to one aspect of this but not the other, hold on to the aspect you're used to and add the other biblical teaching to it. Grow in understanding without losing what you've already learned. To not do that is simply to be unteachable, to be stubborn and stuck in your ways and not to allow the Word of God to grow you further. We are not going to fall into that mistake. We're going to hold, by God's grace, all that He teaches. Now, my friend, if you're listening this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to understand something. God offers you a kingdom. <laughs> he offers you an eternal kingdom. That kingdom is here. It is at hand. It has been here ever since Jesus began his public ministry. It came into the world through Christ, and it's guaranteed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But now you cannot pursue God's kingdom and pursue the kingdoms of this world at the same time. They are oil and water. They are chalk and cheese. They do not go together. This means then you must repent of all other kingdoms. You must turn away from them. You must turn away from their values. You must turn away from their lifestyle. You must turn away from their obligations. And you must believe then in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was crucified for your sins, who, when crucified for your sins, was turning God's anger away from you by taking your place who died and three days later was raised from the grave, showing that he had defeated death, that he had defeated sin, and that God had accepted him as an acceptable sacrifice. So now God, God calls you to put your faith to believe in this Jesus and in this good news that your sins have been removed through the cross and that your righteousness has been purchased by Jesus' own life. You must repent and believe in Jesus if you are going to be a part of God's kingdom. You must believe that Jesus is your only monarch, your sole ruler, and submit to him as your Lord through faith. You must do the work of the kingdom the way the king requires. And I want you to understand something, beloved. If you're not yet a Christian, your repentance and your belief in Jesus 
again, they are obligations. They are not options. They are commands. God is exerting his right, his legitimate authority to rule your religious perspective. He puts it this way in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands, commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The proof that God is going to judge the world is the resurrection. And God has appointed that day for judgment. You do not wish to disobey the gospel and its command to repent and believe in Jesus and wind up on that day of judgment giving an account to God for your sins. You will be judged eternally. You will be lost in an never-ending hell. But there's a way of escape. That's the good news. And that way is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and putting your faith in Him and turning to Him in repentance, making Him as your Lord, accepting His authority to rule your own spiritual life and spiritual response to the gospel. Beloved, if you have never done it before, repent and believe. Today is the day. Now is the time. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Enter it by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel and you will be saved. So Jesus has this authority. But notice number two, Jesus has authority to direct our personal lives. That's what we see in verses 16 to 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. So Jesus enters the scene in his public ministry in verses 14 and 15. Verses 16 to 20, one of the first things he begins to do is to call to himself disciples, followers who would um, follow him as their teacher and their, their rabbi. He calls Simon and Andrew in verse 16. Uh, he then calls James and John in verse 19. And these men become some of the first followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of these men were in the family business. They were fishermen. James and John were literally working with their father Zebedee in the boat when Jesus called them. Uh, fishing was their entire way of life and how they put food on the table. But in verse 17, Jesus calls them to follow him instead. He doesn't simply call them to follow blindly. Notice the Lord gives them a purpose. I will make you fishers of men. They must now follow Jesus so he can train them to be evangelists and disciple makers. This thing really gives us a pretty good definition of a Christian. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who helps other people follow Jesus. This scene also gives us a pretty good illustration of uh, what it takes to follow Jesus. Notice what it costs them. Business, family, inheritance, lifestyle, 
everything. But notice how quickly they responded. The text says, immediately they followed him. Now, that's real obedience. It's been said that delayed obedience is still disobedience. They recognized Jesus' authority right away, and they complied. Isn't that marvelous? To respond in quick obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the kind of follow that we do on Facebook and Twitter. This is the kind of radical abandonment of our life as we had lived them independent of God so that we can now uh, have purposeful lives following the Son of God. These men heard that call and marvelously responded immediately. But do you know who is more marvelous in this scene? Jesus. What kind of man walks up to other grown men in the middle of their work, in their profession, and commands them to leave their job and to leave their family in order to follow him, and they do it? I mean, I mean, what kind of man can claim more allegiance and more loyalty to himself than your own father? Only Jesus. And that is the call of discipleship, to, to leave all and to come and follow him. So we read in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in a return for his soul? Now Jesus is recognizing that we should forfeit our lives in order to follow him. And he's recognizing that he has that kind of authority to direct our personal lives, to direct us away from our professions, to follow him, to direct us away from our families, to follow him, to direct us from our livelihood, how we put food on the table, to follow him. That that is actually the way to life, is to give up all that we have in order that we might have him. And he sees himself as having that legitimate authority to call us into such a life. And so the question begins, it becomes, are you following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Do we, do we follow him, listen, because we recognize his authority, or do we follow him because we think it would be good for us? Now, it is good to follow Jesus, but if that's the only reason you follow Jesus, what happens when following Jesus becomes difficult or inconvenient, even costly? I mean, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross being a, a tool of, of capital punishment, of death. So following Jesus is a certain kind of dying, one that we do daily. So if we're following Jesus because we think it would be good for us, then in some sense we're following our own authority. What we're really following is our own desire for blessedness or happiness or peace or some other good. We've maybe not yet recognized that we should be following him most fundamentally because he has all authority. Even authority to command our personal lives. So, when it gets hard following Jesus, will you protest? Will you demand your way? 
Will you get angry and assert that he hasn't kept his part of the bargain? Beloved, he has not entered into a bargain with his creatures. He has entered into lordship over his creatures. And he has the right to call us to follow him. At the end of John chapter 6, there are some who had been following Jesus for a while. And when Jesus began to teach things that they found hard to accept, hard to believe, many of them left. And Jesus turned to these same men that he called here in Mark chapter 1 and a few others and said, Will you leave also? And, and Simon Peter got it right. He says, You have the words of life. I mean, where will we go? You're the one who, who leads to life. And that's the real difference between disciples and false professors. The false professors will turn away when following Jesus gets hard. But the true disciples did not begin to follow him because they thought that was going to be good for them. They began to follow him because they recognized his authority over their lives. To govern them. To rule them as their Lord and their God. Christian, is that you? Is that your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus? In accepting Jesus as Lord, have you accepted his right to direct your personal lives to his agenda rather than your own? And perhaps that would be the next level of discipleship for you, is to embrace this authority and to live under it because it's right. Because Jesus has that authority over our personal lives. Well, that brings us to a, the next scene in Mark chapter 1. We find it there in verses 21 to 28. And again, we see here Jesus' authority over two things. Really, our next two points in this one scene. His authority to teach God's word and his authority to rule over demons. Look at me in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The point of verses 21 to 28, again, is Jesus' authority. We know that because the section begins and ends with references to his authority. Anytime you see a section of scripture that begins and ends with the same idea, that's what's called an inclusio. It means that everything that is between those two references at the beginning and the ending uh, is included in the points, that repeated idea in the beginning and the ending. Right? And so everything that's happening in that scene is meant to emphasize that basic point, that Jesus has authority. Now, notice in verses 21 and 22, Jesus went to the synagogue and taught the people. Verse 22 tells us he taught with authority. 
text doesn't really tell us what's meant by that. It distinguishes him from the scribes who apparently did not teach with that kind of authority. But it doesn't really tell us what that looked like yet. Was, was he really passionate? Was he loud? Did he kind of get into people's faces and challenge them? Uh, or did he teach in a, a domineering and controlling way? Or did he teach with a lot of expertise? It doesn't really say. But right in the middle of the teaching, a demon-possessed man started acting out. Now, y'all need to know this already, but the devil will take you to church. He will take you to church and have you right among God's people, controlling and oppressing your life, as is the case right here. Now, the, this man, oppressed by an unclean spirit, he speaks out in a loud way in the, in the middle of the service. And you can imagine all eyes turn to him and looking at him and, and, and hearing him cry out to Jesus the way he did. And he's claiming to know Jesus, that he's the Holy One of God. I mean, when, when demons show up at church testifying that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that, that will grab your attention. But really, it's Jesus' reply and the crowd's reaction that's meant to hold our attention. Because that, that brings our attention away from the dramatic, supernatural thing that's happening with this unclean spirit and brings our attention to the one who really should be occupying our vision. Brings it back to Jesus. So Jesus replies in verses 25 and 26. He rebukes the unclean spirit. He sends the demon away. The spirit protests, convulses the man, doesn't want to leave, doesn't want to obey Jesus' command. But he does. And that's how we know Jesus has authority over the demons. And it's interesting. There's not one place in the Bible that I can think of where a demon or an unclean spirit ever disobe disobeys Jesus. Again, they want to. They, they want to stop God's plan. They want to hinder Jesus as the Messiah. They want to continue oppressing human beings in, in spiritual torment and to keep them away from God. But every time they encounter the Lord, the demons tremble in fear. And every time Jesus commands them, immediately they obey. Why? Well, it's because of what the demon says. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is God's chosen Savior, who has authority to rule the, the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, is king of all creations, including fallen angels and unclean spirits. Jesus has absolute authority over Satan and all of his demons. And we see that in his rebuke. And then notice the, the crowd's reply in verse 27. They recognize that he is teaching with divine authority. The crowd stops tripping on the demon-possessed man. They turn their faces, their faces to Jesus. They recognize that Jesus was different. His word had power, had authority. And the people, the people often recognize this about Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. Think for a moment at the end of the Sermon of, Mount, of, of the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. We read these words. And when Jesus finished teaching, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I mean, Jesus wasn't, well, maybe this and maybe that, the way the scribes were. There's an old joke in the Jewish communities that says, um, wherever you have three rabbis, you're sure to find five opinions. <laughs> That's not like that with Jesus. And notice now, Jesus' authority, notice its source. 
It doesn't come from outside of himself. It comes from inside of himself, from who he is, the Son of God. Consider, I just mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, consider the earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is expanding on the law, on the Ten Commandments. And it says things like this, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see what Jesus is maintaining? He has a unique authority. So much so that he could speak in the first person pronoun, I. I say to you. Now, human authority comes from an office or from an expertise. So a police officer has authority because they are in that position, right? Not because of their personal identity. The same is true of judges, teachers, parents. Authority comes from position or it comes from expertise. That's human authority. For example, my and every preacher's authority comes from the book, comes from the Bible. We don't have authority in our person. Our authority is ministerial and delegated. So don't ever get caught up on the kind of uh, pastor-said church culture that, that treats human pastors as if they are infallible, as if they have independent authority that emanates from themselves. Pastors are not Jesus. Doesn't matter how good we are as pastors, how long we've been doing it, how faithful you may judge us to be. Respect pastors. Give them double honor as the Bible instructs. But pastors never have authority the way Jesus does. Jesus' authority comes from his very person as God. Ours comes from rightly handling the word of God. So when we begin to think about Jesus' authority, we're not just thinking about another human authority. No, we're talking about the one who at the end of Matthew's gospel says, all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Because he is indeed God the Son. So the question becomes, as we look at verses 21 and 28, do we know Jesus as well as an unclean spirit does? I mean, do we respond to his authority as immediately and completely as the unclean spirit, even when we, we would desire to do something different? Or do we recognize anything different about Jesus' word in comparison to everyone else? I mean, the crowds in that day did. Or have we made Jesus' voice just sort of only one voice among many others? Here's how you can tell. We know we treat Jesus' word and his authority higher if, in fact, we take all the other voices and judge them by his word. 
if, if his word is is high, if his word is authority, if his word is the rule and the basis by which we judge all other ideas and teachings, then we know that we are honoring his authority and his teaching through the scripture. But if we find ourselves preferring other sources of information and using it as an authority equal to or above the Bible, well, then we have sort of lowered Jesus' voice and authority and made it just one in the crowd. And in a world with so many voices competing to be heard, it's no surprise to us, is it, that if we lower Jesus' voice, if we turn down the volume on his word, that sooner or later it will be difficult for us to hear him, be difficult for us to discern his voice from the others. And we're not surprised then if we wind up with lives that dishonor him rather than reverence him and submit to his authority. So as you look at Jesus' authority to teach and his authority over demons, where do you think you should hold the Bible? And that brings us to our fourth scene, verses 29 to 24. Look there with me. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In our final scene, Jesus and the disciples, again, they return to Peter's home. Now, Peter's home in Capernaum is kind of like their home base for ministry uh, in that region. They find Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever in bed. And Jesus goes and compassionately takes her hand, and touch, ministering to her with a, a, a holy touch, and he heals her. He heals her so completely that she, she gets up and she began serving everybody. Then, at sundown, the whole city comes to Peter's house to see Jesus. And verse 34 tells us that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So there's this kind of impromptu mass miracle service, healing service, right there at Peter's house. Now, we've already seen that Jesus is casting out demons in our previous section. He does more of that here. So what I want us to focus on now is that the text talks about how he heals our bodies. How he has authority to heal our diseases. Now these healings, like all miracles, have, have two primary purposes. Uh, one, that they are a sign of the authenticity of Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. And number two, they, they indicate the presence of God's kingdom uh, breaking in through Jesus. So this was a foretaste of the age to come. This was a, a commercial for, for the, the, the life of fullness and health uh, in, in the kingdom of God. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. Jesus' mission was not solely focused on our spiritual need. That, that was ultimate, but it wasn't the sole focus. He also addressed the physical weaknesses and infirmities and the needs of our bodies too. He healed. 
He touched. He, he recognized that we are embodied creatures and that our bodies matter. They, they matter in God's kingdom work. They matter in God's saving work. So much so that our bodies are going to be renewed in the age to come and glorified so that we are always embodied creatures. So if Jesus recognized this about the importance of the physical need and the body, his followers should too. So whether pastors or deacons or deaconesses, whether presidents, congressmen, mayors, or civil servants, whether parents or school teachers, God intends authority to be used for the blessing of those under it, not for the benefit of those who hold it. Now, this is important. One of the reasons authority is under attack is because too often those in authority have used it to abuse the bodies of others. Think again of the child sexual abuse scandals I mentioned in the introduction. Think of CEOs of major corporations who have stolen the pensions of their employees to fund their lavish lifestyles. Think of the parent who physically abuses their child or aborts a child's life in the womb. Think of the number of police officers who have shot unarmed citizens in a country whose laws say we are meant to be innocent until proven guilty. All of these misuses of authority land on the body. They betray the way God intends authority to be used. Authority is, to, is not raw, unaccountable power. Proper authority is power controlled by love for the benefit of others. When, when God ordains authority, that's, that's what he intends it to do. When, when God exercises his own authority, that's what he does. He, he uses it, here in this paragraph, for the healing of people, for the freeing of people from demonic oppression. He controls his power by love in order to bless us. And this is why Christians should protest any unjust use of authority and never side with unjust authority. This is why we shouldn't rely on simplistic teaching that, that would have us to believe that simply because someone is in authority, we should not question what they do. We are the ones who know Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example and how our Lord used authority with love. We know from the scriptures that those two things are meant to go together. Authority and love are married in God's design. Authority is never for the individual's selfish pleasure or a group's selfish position. It's for others and for their flourishing. So Christian churches ought to be a force for recognizing proper authority and making sure it's used in a Jesus-like way. So churches should remove abusive pastors. Christian voters should remove abusive politicians and never support them. Citizens should call brutal police officers to account for their actions. Christian parents should work to end abortion and child abuse. 
disciples ought to oppose modern-day slavery and sex trafficking, human trafficking. And Christian neighbors ought to feed the hungry among them. And churches ought to continue founding hospitals that care for the sick, and on and on and on. See, following Jesus' example, we take whatever authority we have for the, and use it for the health and well-being of others. When authority is misused, misused, the guilty person must be held to account. And this use of authority for flourishing, that's a good question for the Seeking Shalom PSA team to, to undertake. What kinds of authority do we have or do we represent that we can use for the health and well-being of our community? How can we enter into Jesus' Jesus's life and Jesus' example in this way? For Jesus has all authority in himself. What does he do with it? He teaches. He liberates. He comforts. He heals. The Lord does not use authority for his own advantage. He uses it to help, to bless and to save others. This is the kind of authority everyone should and must recognize. Jesus is the authority everyone should follow, not just because it's to our advantage, but because it's who Jesus is. It's what Jesus is owed. Our submission, our worship, because he's the Lord who has all authority. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are not impotent. You are not without power. And we praise you that you are not illegitimate. That, that your authority is legitimate. It is right. It is correct. And we praise you that you have authority over all things. Lord, from our bodies to spiritual forces to everything in between, seen and unseen, you are the sovereign ruler of the universe. It is right for us to worship you. It is right for us to praise you. And so we do. And we pray that right now you would give grace to some soul to repent and to believe and to humble themselves beneath your authority. And that you would give grace to your church uh, to embrace your authority more fully uh, and to walk with you, O oh Lord, in greater faith. Help us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name.